All right, guys, we talked with Hannah and Kelty today from the Upbringing Podcast, and you are going to love them. Stay tuned after the episode. We continued to chat and got some fun tips for them on cleaning and helping our kids participate in chores and around the house. That is after um, the commencement of the episode. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Find the Magic, the podcast that will help you honor yourself, your kids, and your partner. We'll give you tips and strategies to create peace and authenticity within your family. We inhale a ridiculous amount of books and life tools and distill the information for you. I'm Terilyn Griffin. I'm Caitlin Gabriel. And I'm Felicia Allen. Let's find the magic together. All right, guys. So we are talking with Hannah and Kelty today. They are twins and co-hosts of the parenting podcast, Upbringing, which is amazing. Carolyn and I both really, really love it. And we wanted to interview them today because we cross over on so many parenting pillars, if you will. I feel like we're, we're all huge advocates of respectful parenting and honoring our children's emotions and all of the good things. So we're going to dive into that today. But Hannah and Kelty, why don't you introduce yourselves to our listeners? Yeah, it, we're so happy to be here. First mm-hmm. of all, we're such fans of your podcast too. It's, it's, we were so grateful to have found the magic in finding you guys. How many people <laughs> probably do play on word puns? We can't be the it. only ones, but, but you, you really are magical, magical <laughs> ladies. So we feel so grateful to be here. Um, yeah, and we, we always introduce ourselves as twins, speakers, and usually works in progress, mm-hmm. um, really tired, tired moms <laughs> right now, <laughs> parenting in captivity. Um, and yeah, we, we um, are behind the podcast upbringing and the Instagram community around it. Um, we're certified coaches in simplicity parenting, positive discipline, and we're trained in the respectful parenting approach, Rye. Um, and our real kind of mission is to empower parents to grow up alongside their kids for what we call sanity and social change. And what we really love talking about and exploring and elevating is um, the conversations around discipline and our, our practices as parents, because we think those are really, really impactful, not just for our kids and how they're raised, not just for our relationship with them, but for our collective and greater future, like the generation we're raising and, and moving out into the world that we're desperately needing right now to be the thought leaders, the change makers, the empaths, the innovators. Um, so that's a little about us. Personally, though, Kel, do you want to take it away? Yeah, we we live on a 24-acre organic farm with our husbands and our kids who are three, four, five, and six. We've each got two kids. And uh, we're just kind of making it work. Um, all of us here, our, our husbands are kind of in creative um, techie fields, and we, we work the farm a little bit, eat a lot of the ve- veggies, um, <laughs> traverse an adventure with, with our babes. Um, and we just love talking about the hard stuff and why it's the good stuff. It's, it's kind of our jam. I love that. I, f- I love that about your podcast. I feel like every episode I've listened to, you're both so raw and open in the, the statement that as parents, we are constantly growing and awakening and progressing and there's no right answer. And I love that works, works in progress. I feel like that's all of us, right? (laughs) I want to know, I hear you guys, you know, often as part of your introduction, 
Um, and when you go to your all of your podcasts, you talk about growing up alongside your kids. Would you mind just taking a couple minutes and explaining that a little bit more? Because I, I love the idea of it and I want to know why it's so um, powerful for you guys, that statement that we are literally like growing up with our kids. Yeah. I mean, I think backtracking to six years ago when I had my daughter and then six months later, Kelty had her daughter. Um, I think that we just thought, well, we're just going to be winging it, this whole parenting thing. That's what everyone does. You just kind of figure it out as you go. That's how Kelty and I had kind of done most things in our lives with just kind of just going and rolling with it and hopefully it would go well. And we were, had been really lucky and we're really privileged in that way. Um, and then we had a family trip. And our girls were born that made us kind of rethink like, whoa, what is life about? What are we doing here? Who are these babies? And I think we moved from uh, kind of this focus of pr protecting our own sanity um, to then being like, who is this little human and how can I really be nurturing this child? And so we kind of moved into that through Rye parenting and the respectful parenting realm. Um, and as we were kind of, we were, you know, raising these kids and seeing them in these new eyes against this kind of cultural conditioning that usually tells us we're the parents, we should know everything. We have all the answers. We need to be in control all of the time. We need to shape and mold this child. Um, we started realizing, oh my gosh, this child is shaping and molding us. This is, the, this is a, a collaborative relationship going on. And just because we have more power and privilege as the parents, we have more experience, we have more responsibility. This, these, these kids we're raising have so much incredible power and um, wisdom and authority of their own. And we started to understand that respectful parenting was more than just the right thing to do. It was this, this really human thing to do, especially once our daughters started resisting us, which we can get into in a little while too. We started realizing, um, wow, this is bigger than just them. This is bigger than just us. This is like, this is a social and like cultural situation mm -hmm. that we're playing out very small in our homes. Yeah. I think that it's, it was easy for us at first to look at those harder um, elements of our kids' personalities or just the stress of like the sleep we lose, all of these, all of these challenges that we experience as parents, the, you know, the sleep, the crying, the tantruming, the resistance, all of these things as, as obstacles to this sort of like perfect um, like idealistic uh, family dream we had. And I think that when we started kind of flipping that on its head and being like, okay, if we can actually look at all of these really tough challenges of parenting as opportunities, then we're able to realize all of the ways that we can grow from them. Not just that our kids can, but that through that awareness, we can be more patient. We can buff up our communication and empath skills. We can um, get into problem solving mode beyond anything we'd ever had ever thought we needed to, right? It, just from looking at these challenges as opportunities for growth and connection and skill building and stuff like that. Totally. You hit a chord there with me when you said, when you're trying to hold on to your sanity, and I'm not saying that parents mm -hmm. should just be walking around insane, but we all know that feeling when you're holding on really, really tightly to an ideal of how your kids should be, keyword should, reacting or acting or what they should be doing, what they should be achieving. And I, at least for me, I have that feeling when I'm holding on really tightly to my expectation of my kids. And what I hear you saying and, and how it feels to me is an opening up to the relationship and to their feelings, to them just 
just being kids and opening up to who they are as a person instead of holding so tightly on to the ideals that, you know, society has us chained to, or, or maybe our parents, wherever we're getting the um, feelings from. I think if we can open up to our kids, it's just such a beautiful relationship that we can cultivate. And sometimes we just hold on too tightly to our expectations. Yeah, I think it's goosebumps. goosebumps. <laughs> uh, that's beautiful. And I think it's also can be incredibly terrifying to let go of this control and these beliefs we have of what our responsibility is. And, and, you know, with these little beings that we love so much to think that they can be in charge of so much more than we think they can, that they can be taking the lead in all of these areas of their lives. We call these their freedoms, you know, their, their freedom to feel, to move, to play, to nourish, to choose, to, um, what are some other ones to, to know, speak. to speak yeah. all of these areas that we've been culturally programmed, like you said, through institutions in our lives, our own families, our educational system, um, our churches, all these places, um, well-meaning places mm-hmm. that we are kind of, um, led to believe it's our job to control and to do all of this. And something Kelty and I bring up all the time is how, what an immense relief it was to realize, I don't know if you have had the same feeling, what immense relief it is to realize it's not all on our shoulders. We don't have to constantly be working so hard. We can just, when we let go, we, we see what our kids are able to, to contribute to their lives, to our relationship, to our home. It's pretty mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. And I love what you said about expectations too. I feel like expectations are what cripple us as parents. And I think that that tiptoeing into that space of examining our expectations and then challenging our expectations. Why? Why do I think this? I remember calling my mom and being like, will my daughter get sick and die if her head is wet and she won't put a coat on outside? Where do I have this idea? Is that true, mom? And she was like, no, I think she's probably fine. I was like, well, I remember you doing that to me. Um, But I mean, expectations from the littlest thing to those more traditional things of a kid must say this or, or can't say this, or when I say this three times, then this has to happen or or you have to look like this, or just there's so many examples of these kind of deep-seated expectations we have. Um, And Hannah and I talk about kind of like taking those goggles off and putting a different lens on to just sort of bust through like all of those shoulds, you were saying shoulds, gotas, need tos, all of those things that that can be, like you said, Hannah, like kind of destabilizing at first to get rid of those things because those give us a sense of control and comfort. Okay, here's the shoulds, here's the musts. This is giving me a sense of security in the wild west that is parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that as, as we've been practicing, examining those and challenging those and kicking some of those to the curb, it has been incredibly freeing. Right. And we've been creating our own expectations and those can be flexible expectations and those can be mixing expectations with the kids in a collaborative or democratic kind of way in our homes. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, so you have a motto and I think you say it um, in the intro to your podcast, but it's trust over fear, connection over control, progress over perfection. And so I think what I, when I talk to people about respectful parenting or this kind of concept in general, um, to being a more conscious parent, a lot of the pushback that I hear is, but where is that line? So they, again, it's the fear of if I let go of this control, then, you know, my kids are just going to be running around crazy, controlling everything. <laughs> They're going to be in control, right? 
So can you kind of flesh out your freedoms model and how that works within real life? You know what I'm saying? Like when it comes to discipline um, and teaching our kids, how can we balance that connecting without being the pushover parent? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, a really common mis- misconception, and I love bringing that up because it's it's the the beautiful devil's advocate that every, it's in the back of all of our minds, being like, "But what about this is going to look and feel incredibly permissive? My mother-in-law is going to like she could be she, all over this, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, this is." And in the back of our minds, we're like, we're still battling with that trust. It's such a big trust fall. But I think that that is that binary way that our society encourages us to think that it's all or nothing, that we're either authoritarian, rigid, hardcore, or we're lax and permissive and totally chaotic. And that belief system actually encourages us to just flip-flop between both of those, Mm -hmm. rigid, permissive, rigid, permissive, rigid, permissive. Mm -hmm. And what Kelty and I talk about in so many of these respectful parenting resources that are out there, they talk about that middle way. There actually is this beautiful, what we call playing in the gray area that's unknown. It's not as clear because we weren't all raised in this gray area. We see it in other institutions sometimes, like in some new businesses now that they're like, they're realizing, oh my gosh, I can find the middle way with my employees. I can actually treat them more respectfully and build a connection and they'll actually perform better. What? What? Like I give them a ping pong table and ask them what they think of me and everyone's doing better. Like how is this happening? Right. So there are all these institutions that are kind of finding that middle way. But I think in parenting, we are very, we're, we're walking in the dark with this. And I think that's such a common thing you bring up of people saying, I know, but what does that actually look like? How do I actually hold limits and boundaries for my child's safety, for general appropriate development, but also do it in a way that's respectful and loving and not over controlling. And I think I mean, a huge part of this is our freedoms model because it raises that awareness of not just assuming we know where our control needs to be, but control and saying, whoa, 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 let's talk division of responsibility here. What's my responsibility as the parent and what's my my child's? A month from now, a year from now, that's going to change from the moment we bring them home and they're babies. Wow, that is so much responsibility on us for caregiving. And then all of a sudden they're one and their resistance is what tells us Yo, whoa, wait, maybe I need a little more power here. I'm checking your privilege, mom. I, mm-hmm. I need a little more agency in my life. And that's where the, their freedoms start to come out to show us where we need to be giving them more of that power. Kelty, you give a really good introduction to the freedoms though. Yeah, I think they're, they're basically these, these 10 areas that we've kind of identified. Okay, we were like, where is resistance popping up? Continually. Over and over again, our kids are sensitive and spirited. We get a lot of chances to be exploring these (laughs) areas. Um, And they all came up around things like their body and attunement, their eating, their hygiene, right? Their big feelings, their, the the words that they say, um, the way that they move and grow and play, um, their ability to know things, what's going on in their world. And as we kind of started exploring that, we got really comfortable in beginning these, as a, these, all of these challenges, as instead of saying hierarchically, here's what happens. I'm going to tell you down the food chain, like a responsible parent does. Instead, we're busting that whole system and saying, we're going to make this an egalitarian conversation between two people. And each of these freedoms is a negotiation. I'm still in charge. I still have the ultimate responsibility as your parent, but I'm going to hold that control loosely. And I'm going to give you some of that power. And we're going to make it a conversation together. 
right? I feel like we need a particular situation though, yeah. right? Do you guys have any situations? Because people, folks might be being like, Is okay, this, this all sounds wonderful. <laughs> and now bring it down to earth, ladies. <laughs> okay. So I was actually just going to ask you that because I love, I feel like concept, conceptual conversation is thrilling to me. And then I think, okay, hold on, hold on. Let's talk about a specific. So, I mean, for example, a question that we get a lot, that we talk about a lot also, but it's so common with young children, what you guys can either choose. <laughs> you can either talk about when kids are hurting another kid that comes up. I don't know how in, infinite <laughs> amount of times, like a hundred um, times a day or, or when you said hygiene, like what do you, so for example, like brushing teeth, it's a small thing that all of us parents face every single day. So can you address maybe those two, the hygiene and then treatment of other children? Yeah. I mean, oh my gosh, we, we just came out with a new um, sibling survival guide and I mean, Kelty and I are twins. So like the whole sibling hitting each other thing, when our friends come to us or clients come to us, we're like giddy because it's just, <laughs> this is such an incredible, I sound so wrong, but it's such an incredible opportunity to be teaching our kids, not what's right or wrong. I think that's our automatic parenting assumption. And again, that's in very binary thinking, but it's an opportunity to teach them what their underlying needs are and understand what the underlying needs of another person person are, right? That's what it really is. Um, we talk a lot about with sibling stuff too. We got to bust some beliefs that first of all, um, our goal as parents isn't for our kids to have a completely harmonious relationship. It's just to have connection homes and connection is part of that understanding needs game. So it's asking us to not pay attention to the behavior, to keep them safe ultimately, but to say, I'm going to keep everyone safe, but I'm going to focus on what started this, the root cause of these issues, the, the inner wisdom and authority, the spirit that led them to lash out based on their developmental uh, capacities of the moment. So that if they have that growing awareness and if they're attuned to their needs and maybe understand another person's needs, depending on their age, then they can eventually communicate those needs and kind of rewrite those impulses that they have as they're building that prefrontal cortex that yeah, we're working that, on. That all comes down to our role. And right. How much, how often <laughs> yeah. do we feel like, oh my God, I'm the judge, I'm the jury, I'm the ready, I'm the hall monitor. This is like, I hate being this person, right? Mm -hmm. I just, I feel like I'm turning into the worst version of myself going in and busting up these fights. Like three, four, five, and six, that means there's four kids, six different relationship dynamics. It's like total chaos in our house. Yeah. Um, and I think that we've had to rewrite that too and, and say, instead of all of these things, this laundry list of roles we don't want to do, let's just be sensitive support staff. And when we can be sensitive support staff, we can go in, let's say we hear a scream, something breaks, we come in, someone's face is getting smushed into the ground and someone's sitting on top of them or something terrible, right? So we try to approach neutrally, right? Mm -hmm. We try to come in there just being like, okay, this is not an emergency. It's going to be okay. They are going to be vibing off my approach, right? Right. If we think their conflict is bad and we come in like, you know, an EMS responder or like maybe like a EMS responders are actually, like pretty they're cool. They're pretty calm, actually. <laughs> uh -huh. know. So coming in like an EMS responder would be better. But like I think that all business, this is cool. Seen this a million times. Right. But we good. want our kids to approach conflict. I think we always have to have this future think of like, if we want our kids to approach conflict with people in their family and others well someday, we've got to play it chill and not be creating more negativity around mm -hmm. it. So it works. Approach. It's a lot of neural programming, but just even mm -hmm. approaching with a, just a, a, a neutral, non-judgmental, everything is under control. We can get through this. I'm 
so confident in our ability to do this demeanor goes a long way mm-hmm. for us and for them. And then I would say we'd run our resist approach. And our resist approach is, it's kind of this loose six-step um, process of a conversation with our kids that replaces the more instinctual control model that's been programmed into all of our heads. We have an acronym for it, I think. Uh, Consequences oh, go ahead. <laughs> on my terms, now, um, <laughs> threats rewards, overpower, and lectures. Right. Those are just a few of the things we tend just to do. Just a few that come immediately to <laughs> mind when, our, when our, one of our children <laughs> hits the other one, right? And so we're, we're really replacing that with the resist approach. So when our kids are resisting our expectations, our agenda, rules. one another, rules, just like general, like, you know peace and humanity. humanity. (laughs) We work the resist approach. And in in that we're resisting the paradigm of control and the hierarchy that's perpetuating these kind of inherited legacies of control. We want our kids to know how to use control, how to get along with others. So we can't teach them to respect another person by yelling at them. You know, we can't teach another person to innovate by giving them consequences. You know, like we can't teach them to do all these things that we want them to by using methods of control. That's not how teaching works. They actually teach, they actually learn by the way we teach them. So um, to just move through this really quickly, I mean, respect is the lens that we, um, do we say what the resist approach is even? Yeah. So resist stands for respect, empathize, sync up, innovate, summarize, and trust. Right. And it's not a, a, a step perfect process. Sometimes we, we get to respect and then we just scream and lose it. Sometimes we make it to innovate and then we're just like, I'm out. And then, or sometimes we get to empathize in the second step and everyone's doing better. Yeah. Or we get to sync up and then our kids start innovating the next step on their own. And that's the beauty of the resist approach is that, you know, when we're using consequences, our kids start using consequences on us. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody's noticed that. I sure did. Mm -hmm. And so when, when we're using innovation, all these other kind of more promotional, adaptive, nonviolent communication-based skills, they can start using those with, with themselves, one another, even with us. Like my son asked me to take some deep breaths the other day. I was like, (laughs) damn, you are on this resist approach. (laughs) So can you run through that in that situation that you described just so our listeners can get a little taste of what that looks like? Yeah, really briefly. Do you have a specific uh, sibling like that always happens or do you want to use the one where someone's getting squashed and just work on that? Yeah, that's a good one. That's a great, that's a common (laughs) one. It's common enough. (laughs) Um, So I think, uh, so we would, we would start with respect, which is this lens of saying, wait a second, let's check our privilege, check our power, check our children. They are unique little people. They have brains that are, you know, in development. This is also, you know, they have impulses that they struggle to control. We cannot expect them to be adults yet. And and getting mad about it isn't going to help, right? We also need to maybe keep them safe. Part of respecting our kids is knowing their, their limits, their boundaries, their abilities, and their uh, areas where they need to be growing. So oftentimes that's setting up a baby out of the way so that our you know, toddler won't hit them or mm-hmm. creating areas and being a little more sensitive in that way. So in this step, maybe we missed out on that a little bit, or maybe their conflict was inevitable. That's okay. It's a wonderful opportunity. And that's respecting that our kids have this relationship putting on our respect goggles. This is all going to be okay. Moving through conflict is that that's how people grow. If we prevent conflict all the time, no one learns anything, right? Mm -hmm. Then we move into the empathize step. 
where to, to solve any issue, everyone's brains need to be calm, right? We don't want to ramp anything up because nobody's learning anything when brains are reactive. They've got to be calm so that they can be receptive. And it's so easy for us to just thunder in there and teach mode. Don't do this. You can't say this. Get right. off him. This is wrong because, and we think right. we got to get all that info now. They got to know why this isn't okay right now. Right. And that's skipping the empathize step, which often actually helps people Brain, their brains work, makes everyone more receptive, calms everyone down, sets the scene for true learning and connection, basically. Mm -hmm. right? It seems a little bit, but it seems so counterintuitive to be like, yeah. what? I'm going to lean into this like terrible behavior, but we're not looking at the behaviors. We're looking at the needs underneath because that ultimately is what will change the behavior over time. So we go in with curiosity. Yeah. How's everyone doing? We have a few pat, pat things that come out so we don't scream, why? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> right? So we say, how's it going in here? Or how you doing? Or what's up everyone? Or I hear someone struggling. Can I help? Yeah. Something that's saying like, this is totally normal. What I'm seeing right now, it's informing us. Tell me, tell me what's going on. You know, if we're mad, everyone clams up. No one's telling anything. Right. Mm -hmm. So we want to come in saying, I want to listen. If I can help under, if I want to understand you, then maybe you're more likely to understand yourself and the other person. So we can really move forward here. Mm -hmm. so that's listening. That's asking questions. That's maybe if the kids are pre-verbal, you can make some, uh, some guests. Yeah. and inferences. It looks like you're holding on to the toy. So maybe you're, you translate a little bit and describe what you see. You're holding on to Lego and you are lying down here on the floor with the Lego print on your forehead. Okay. <laughs> so maybe you both wanted it. Is that right? Am I getting that right? So you're trying to just translate like a, a, a mediator would and helping understand and, and saying, okay, so you wanted it. You can tell him, I want that you know, or you can tell her, I don't like it when you squish me. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're syncing up. That next step is saying, we're putting this out on the table. It looks like you've needed this. You needed that. Yeah. And, right? I, and that could be also, seems like you still want to be sitting on her face. I, mm -hmm. I, but I can't let you do that. So we're syncing up parent to child also, and maybe having to kind of be like, but we got to stay safe everyone. Right. Let's check in about that. Mm -hmm. Right. And then we move to innovate, which is the fun step where often we innovate for kids right away. You take this, you take that, or you go outside, you go to your room and we do all the problem solving for them. Right. But we want our kids to be able to problem solve through struggle, to be thinking, what, what is this inner resistance that's happening with me? Get through this. How can I make this interesting? How can I make this fun? This is a step where everyone's like, oh my gosh, do I have to be problem solving for my kids for eternity? This sounds like <laughs> a lot of effort for me to be doing for them to what learn it or something. They should mm -hmm. be able to figure this out on their own. And we always say, no, we got to be scaffolding this for them to learn and understand. We're all practicing together and they're going to put us out of a job the more we practice, right. right? I think it's so easy in this innovate step two, and especially with sibling struggles, to really uh, just so naturally define like the, the, victim and the aggressor. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes the talking and innovating we say to our kid is you need to give them that toy or that was wrong. Or say you're sorry. Or say you're sorry or one of those types of things. And they're not really learning anything, but the, the role that we're kind of putting them in. And that then they start actually playing out those roles on their own, which is totally unnecessary. So I think really looking to meet both of their needs equally, going to the person saying, oh, you look like you got a little hurt. I'm here. And how are you doing? What were you needing? I want to understand you too. Everybody's needs matter. Right. And then how can you get your needs met? So if you want this and you want that, we need some ideas. So early on for kids, you might need to throw some ideas out. Could you split the Lego in two? Could you 
could you find the other blue one over there? And not to try and fix it, but just to say, look how many options there are. Mm, what about no this? Would this work? Mm. Right. And then eventually the kids start to figure that out themselves. And especially the older one, if we work on innovation, especially with the older one, then they can find kind of somewhat wily, but very adaptive ways to get their needs met that do not hurt their younger sibling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we move. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think when you use, um, you know, empathy and innovation, those steps really a lot of the times end the, the conflict or you realize the kids didn't even feel like there was necessarily a conflict that they need to solve. Yeah. We come in there with our ideas of what's going on. And if we allow them the space to solve or to just separate, sometimes I've seen with my kids, there was no problem for them. They were just working through their conflict and it was working for them. And if I would have interjected myself again, like you say, as the judge and jury, it would have turned into this whole big, this big issue with myself interjected in. <laughs> and yeah, so, absolutely. yeah, I love that idea of letting them come to the conclusion on their own. Cause it's often not the conclusion we would have come to. Uh huh. I love that. Yeah. In the sibling guide, we talk about one of the first steps is not just approaching neutrally, but before that, watching and waiting and just mm-hmm. taking a look at it and seeing, okay, how's this playing out? Does someone look like they're really going to get hurt? Does someone look like they're being seriously inconvenienced or that this might mount to something else? And it's so natural for us, like you said, to just run in there and go basically straight to the next step, which is summarize where we set a limit and say, no yelling or mm-hmm. split up or get off her or whatever it is. And we're skipping that whole beginning part where everyone is actually learning what they're feeling, what another person might be feeling. They're calming down. They're thinking about ways to adaptively solve their problems, right? They're thinking about ways to put up a little boundary or advocate for what they need, right? Mm -hmm. We're missing all those steps usually. It's crazy. Well, and then when we go into that, like that uh, summarize step though, where we do need to sometimes or not set a limit, but other times we need to, well, it sounds like, you know, uh, you're still wanting to sit on her. So I'm going to move her over here and we can keep talking about it. You know, sometimes we're ready to move on to innovation or, or um, summarizing and, and our kids are still having the feelings. They're in the empathize step and we moved a little too soon or one of them's ready to innovate, the other one isn't. And that's okay. You know, and I think that that's when we move into the trust step to know we're going to have so many opportunities for this. Sometimes our kids aren't ready to sit and be present and able to calm their bodies and, and move into through the resist approach in a conversation, but it doesn't have to happen in the moment. I think that's another big part of the, mm-hmm. the resist approach. Circling back later is just, it is such a superpower mm-hmm. um, having those conversations later, the same conversation we would have had in the moment just later when they're yeah. receptive, when they're yeah. cuddling at night or on a walk. We were struggling earlier. I came in and and you and your sister were, were having a hard time with that one toy. How, what, what happened with it? Tell me. How was it? And then what did she say? And then how did you feel? Okay. What, what, what do you feel like could happen next time? Is there anything I could do to help? And just being open-ended and listening. I feel like we all grew up with what we call the grill back. Remember earlier when this happened or when you two couldn't get along, when I said, go to your room and play nicely. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to make the circle back a part of our daily routine. You know, like every evening, let's circle back. I think to myself, what can I circle back about? Sometimes I'm like, I can only choose three of this like like, huge list. (laughs) And other times I have to be searching. What's something that we struggled with a bit that we can connect about in like a really lovely neutral way so that we can be processing after the fact. 
so that we can be reminding our kids and ourselves that conflict isn't a negative, inherently negative thing, that it's okay to struggle with each other, that we can always come back together at the end of a day, at the end of a challenge and feel okay about it. Um, I think that's such an important thing to remember with kids. And we've talked about this on past episodes that sometimes as parents and specifically as moms. So I have three boys and then a little girl who's just a baby. So my, my parenting um, relationship has mostly been with boys. So I don't know when it comes to girls, if you see this same thing, cause I know you both have your older kids as girls and so does Terlyn, but um, I see with my boys that too much talk. So we can be going through a very respectful process with them, but they know, and I'm just talking and saying things that they already know. And so I find that in the moment, it's really helpful to, again, respect their respect them by protecting them from getting hurt. So maybe I will separate them or they know not to hit with sticks. Let's say that never happens. Right. So I will go in, remove that, take the stick out of the situation so that they have that safe place. And then later we, we might circle back and talk about it, but there's, there's, uh, things that our kids know. And I think sometimes when we over talk in the moment, we just sound like the want, want, like Charlie Brown in the background. Mm -hmm. So I love that idea of maybe at another time when you're having someone on one time where you can really connect and say, what could we have done instead? And it becomes more of a collaborative process. So I really love that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you say in the empathize stage, this is something that I actually go back and forth and with. So when you say, what's happening here? Do you allow both parties to fully explain themselves? So as my kids get older, it oftentimes sounds like she did this, 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 and this, and this. No, no, no. It wasn't my <laughs> fault. She did this, 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 and this. And so I oftentimes will say, I want to hear what's happening here. Can you each tell me what you did? And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. So what's your, how do you guys go in that empathy stage? It sounds like you give them space to express themselves, but do you hear both stories all the way through or do you kind of uh, coach them on what part they should be telling? (laughs) You know, how do you do that? No, I mean, I think that the, the conversation we have, I love that question. Get par- parsing this, teasing this apart is so important. And I want to say first that remember, I love that you mentioned, Felicia, that it's a conversation. It's not a lecture. So conversations are democratic. They go back and forth. And I think it's so easy for us as parents to over-dominate the conversations because we have more power, because we have more words, because we have more awareness, right? We have more expectations. So I think I love that idea of saying rather than talking, maybe just keep asking questions. And so I think that the question I would ask when, you know, come onto the scene and 
and, and everyone's a little riled up, I would, again, not focus on the behavior, what you did. Sometimes just knowing what happened is important, but I'd say, let's go to the underlying needs. So, so what were you needing? The It's need, not what you did, but what did you need? That is the root cause. That is the source. That is the, the magical formula that will help everyone understand. Because when we talk about behavior, then we move into the shame and blame game. So who wins, who loses, the victim, the aggressor, the right, the wrong. And we move into kind of binary world. And when we talk about needs, no one's needs are more important than someone else's. It's very democratic. Mm-hmm. So we say, what were you needing? Oh, no, not what you did or what she did. What were you needing there? And that helps our kids attune to what was I needing? So they're gaining an awareness of, of what they were doing and why. And, and then what the sibling and, right, did and maybe why they right. did And it. so then the sibling is hearing what their sibling, instead of being like, they did that, they're like, oh, they needed that? Whoa. I, I had no idea that's why they slammed the door, right? And then you, the other child, what did you need there, right? And then you can talk after at, at some point, what was the impact of those needs? And then how can you get those needs met next time where someone's finger doesn't get squished mm-hmm. or where this thing doesn't spill over? Because mm-hmm. I, I, I'm here to listen to your needs. All of your needs matter to me. We're all working on getting our needs met in ways that don't hurt each other or drive me crazy, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a process. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so beautiful. And it sounds to me like a nod to the book or the whole organization of nonviolent communication, Right. I, mm-hmm. um, but I, as you were saying that, I realized I can hear Marshall Rosenberg's voice saying <laughs> that needs never actually truly conflict. It's simply our way of trying to meet those needs that create conflict and violence. So, wow, I think I need to, I mean, I love that and I use it with adults all the time, but this makes a lot of sense to me that in that empathy stage, that's an opportunity to switch the conversation to needs instead of the blame game. I really like that. And I think that's also, I think it's a really awesome tool to use. Um, I use this with my kids when, so a, a classic example is during their quiet time in the day is when I work or do things for myself. And we all know that our kids don't always want us to be doing what we want to do. <laughs> and I love to use that way of communicating, communicating my need. And it seems that they understand it a lot better if I say, So your need is for me to help you build this Lego car. You really want that. And my need is to be able to get my work done before the baby wakes up. And then we come to a solution together. And I feel like my kids just totally understand if you break it down to the need. They really understand that because, again, we all have these needs that we want met and I feel like our kids recognize oh my mom has needs but she also cares about my needs and we can work together I just love I mean nonviolent communication is just brilliant really but if we can turn it to our kids that's that's beautiful I love that idea yeah that, that's beautiful that's those are the keys to the kingdom instead of saying do this don't do this living in this kind of behaviorist world let's go under the water and and look at the underlying needs and the feelings i think that so many problems in our culture and our society are from people who have been separated as children 
from their needs. They have no idea what their needs are because they have always been raised in a control-based institution in the family and then beyond to always meet other people's needs, people who are in power above them. And I think it is one of the most amazing opportunities and responsibilities we have as like white privileged ladies to say, I want to teach my child to understand their needs because if they understand their own needs, then they can communicate them. They can manage them. They can even find adaptive ways to get them met. And if their needs are met, that's when people can support and meet the needs of other people. You know, the, the attunement that they've cultivated in themselves, they can then extend to another person and think, gosh, they did that. What, what were they needing in that moment? Right. It builds the, the groundwork for successful relationships in yeah. a huge way. Right. Yeah. And for social change, we, we like mm-hmm. to say. Yeah. I feel like one of our, the overarching things and it, thing that I think we feel as mothers and parents is that how our kids act and their resistance is reflection on us. So we take that on heavy. If my kid's the one who's hitting at the playground, I think we have a hard time going to his need to cross the bridge on the playground. We go to, oh no, my kid's the hitting kid at the playground. Mm -hmm. So that means he's the hitting kid and he will be for the rest of his life. And Mm -hmm. I'm the mom who has the hitting kid. And we think that our kids, all their misbehaviors reflecting on us and them. So how do you guys have any insight? This is totally meta, like just conceptual, but do you think this requires us to remove that expectation that we have for ourselves to parent perfectly? Do you think it's just the growing up process. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I think that what we came to realize pretty quickly after I had my two kids who were both sensitive and spirited and were the, the hitting kids on the playground in like every scenario of yeah. my life. Like, they're, they're just the swinging kids with the big spirits and the big splashy feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, what we came to learn is about kids' development. And basically that our job as parents isn't to have these expectations met or look like we're doing it all perfectly or do it all perfectly, but to meet our kids where they are, that our kids are always showing us what they're able to do and that kids always prefer to do well. As Dr. Ross Green says, he's like one of our favorites. Everyone wants to do well. So when our kids aren't doing well, we've got to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're doing the best they can with the skills they have right? Everything comes down to, to brain, to ability, to temperament, to spirit. And the way we show up and support that in the moment matters, right? Mm-hmm. It took me maybe about six months to get over the whole hitting on the playground thing. And I, I just did a full like 180 and was like, I am a proud mom of a hitting child. <laughs> like, I had to be like, yes, yes. This is my kid. She is fierce, mm-hmm. right? And then this is my kid. He is fierce. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I like to think, I don't know if this is true, that other parents can see me moving through these conflicts in public over and over and over again with a sense of pride and calm and support and um, not feeling frazzled, not feeling like I need to punish, not feeling overly apologetic, but just projecting that calm sense of confidence and normalizing kids being kids and doing what they need to do. And focusing on kind of that middle way to try to support them, which is so foreign on the playground, right? Oh, man. Yeah, the playground's like the ultimate uh, showdown of parenting. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because so we have our own egos that we're totally. battling with. And yeah, oh, wow. Okay, I love that. Well, and, I love- yeah. 
Oh, go okay. ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I love hearing you describe it. This is actually the best compliment I can give somebody. So I hope you hear it like this, but I can hear Janet Lansbury's like calm, like I can do this voice in, I can just picture you unruffled walking <laughs> onto the playground oh. with that. Like to me, again, this is like the ultimate compliment mm-hmm. I can give, but mm-hmm. I can actually picture as you're describing that. I was like, yeah, you know what? You're giving me hope that I could also do that mm-hmm. if my kid or when they are hitting the way you're describing it just makes it feel so doable. And like, we've all been there so many times and, mm-hmm. and most of the time I feel like I can do it in an unruffled way. Mm-hmm. And there are times that I don't, and I circle back after <laughs> and review, mm-hmm. but uh, well, I love that. I love that. And I think when we really think about it, I think most people on the playground are looking at us more than they are looking at our child. And they're saying, what is this parent showing us? Are they showing us they're cracking down really hard? That's really validating to some parents because it makes them feel safe in the choices they've made and the experiences they've had as children. Other people are like, oh my gosh, this parent is like just across the playground and not even by their kid who's hitting. So again, we're talking about that binary, rigid, permissive thing and showing that middle way and saying, I can bring a new script to this stage as a parent. I don't have to play by the script and read the lines that we're to me. There are other lines available and I can really become empowered and liberated by those and maybe even attract other parents uh, to feel the power that they could have in approaching their child's situations in different yeah. ways. But it's a big thing this Kelty and I talk about is, is choosing self-awareness over socialization as our primary focus in those early years with our kids. And it goes completely the opposite of the way we've been taught on what to focus on as parents, right? Mm, it's the yeah. behavior and the underlying needs exactly the same thing. But yeah. that is like the biggest compliment about Janet. Um, <laughs> seriously. But I think that J- Janet gave us what I'm sure she gave you too, which is an example of the person that you want to embody in those tough situations. And we needed that so much. We needed to hear a calm voice walking through those struggles neutrally. And we had to practice and retrain our brains and our voices to, to do that. And a lot of parents are like, oh, I can't fake it. I can't pretend like this isn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. And we say, no, you're working both sides of the game. We're working on our beliefs that are telling us in that moment, this is okay. This is natural. This is normal. This is necessary. This is not an emergency. My child is doing exactly what they need to be doing. I don't care what anyone else thinks. I care about my kid right now, right? Mm-hmm. And then we're going to be practicing on the physical end, trying to be calm, trying to be neutral, trying to have our head nodding, right? Just all of those little cues to us that become cues to our kids and then become cues back to us. We get that feedback. Oh my gosh, this is working. My role is becoming firmer. My, my suit of armor is becoming um, more a part of my skin, you know, and, and I'm becoming that person. Mm-hmm. It's so true. And in that example, you're modeling. So if you go storming into the situation on the playground, for example, and you're exuding this mad, frustrated and you're not you know instead of turning to the to the kid that your kid hurt and apologizing and being unruffled as Janet would say you're freaking out you're not modeling what you intend to teach your kid in the lecture that you're going to give them (laughs) after and I think modeling is the most important you could say nothing and go in with that um energy and your kid would learn so much, so much more. Yeah. I I think it's such a backwards thing to realize that 
when we go in with control, when we see parents controlling their kids hard, it's usually because they actually feel helpless inside. Right. And moving into a situation very calmly is actually shows power in a different way that most parents aren't used to showing power. Most parents are used to showing power because they feel that powerlessness, so they control. It's a, such a backward thing, but again, it's that daily practice, and our kids give us so many opportunities to be to be working on that modeling mm-hmm. for sure. You want to do the toothbrushing? Resist? Do we have time for that? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Because it's a daily thing. Let's go with the premise of in your household, because I know that you could just choose that, well, I'm going to let my kid choose, but maybe let's go with the premise of dental hygiene is super important to you. And this is a nod to my dental hygienist mother. Um, (laughs) And that to you, like you really want them to brush their teeth. Like you're not going to just say, oh, do whatever. Mm -hmm. So let's maybe start with that premise. You want them to brush their teeth, but you have one who's like, I am not going to brush my teeth. That never happens ever. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it, it, br- toothbrushing is such an interesting case because Hannah and I have to handle it so differently between our homes mm-hmm. um, because her her kids will will resist, but she can actually work the resist approach to to gain compliance in a way that I have. I struggle with because we talk, when we talk about skills like hygiene, like toothbrushing or bathing or, or even chores, cleaning up little things like that. These are all things that are, that are a skill, right? The actual thing in the moment, getting teeth clean, getting things picked up, getting that habit in tune. Right. But we're also talking about them on a greater picture, which is the value, right. Mm -hmm. Which comes from an intrinsic motivation and understanding of the worth of that task, the impact of the task, the reason behind it, the worthiness. Right. And so with my more sensitive spirited kids who really resist to any agenda, to any routine, because I want the value to be instilled so much. And I want them to have a positive association around things like toothbrushing, cleaning up all those things, I'm less likely to force the skill, mm-hmm. right? So I think conversations like this, I always want to tell parents, check into the temperament of your kid. Mm-hmm. You check into the developmental age and stage. Sometimes kids are a little bit more, more likely to push back against things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they're less likely and you can kind of work them a little bit more. Is, is, is me having this agenda that it's every day, twice a day, going to add stress? going to add pressure to our relationship. And I think that we find that out through the resist approach. If we can get through the whole thing and we're working our butts off to have this, this really open, honest communication conversation between two people to get two people's needs met. I need you to brush your teeth because of this. You don't want to brush your teeth because you want to do this, whatever it is. If we've made our way all the way through that and it's still not happening, that's where I drop the mic. And I'm like, we will talk about this more later. We will, <laughs> we will try again in the morning. We get two chances a day, right? Mm-hmm. But Hannah's kids, let's work through the resist approach. I feel like it's a more mm-hmm. natural experience. <laughs> not everyone has a sensitive spirited, but I think that, oh gosh, you've been pushed and, and, um, have grown in so many ways that I definitely haven't because it is so much easier for me to use my power and my mm-hmm. privilege with my kids, even in a generally respectful conversation like the resist approach. I know I have it lucky, but mm-hmm. um, but I, we'd start it with resist, where you know resist. our kid, sorry, yeah. with respect, where mm-hmm. our kids um, are their own little humans. They have their own needs. Oftentimes, I think that we we um, we can interrupt them or uh, bother them when they're in flow. They're not feeling it. I think oftentimes I'm like, well, I think just by yelling toothbrushing time across the house, that's enough of a heads up. That's respectful. My tone was respectful. Respectful, but it's not really thinking about what what are they doing when I'm interrupting them. How connected are they feeling? How respected are they feeling? How brought in to something that is ultimately about their own bodies and their own consent 
You know, is that happening? How can I create a conversation? And it does not happen standing above them with my hands on my hips does not happen from across the house. Right. And so we can't always do that, but when we can, a respectful it, can, invitation. it can go yeah. a long way. Yeah. So I would do, go for a respectful invitation. I'd crouch down to where they are. I'd, you know, do a little jokey thing or a little inside joke. I'd observe what they're working on. I'd, you know, we do, instead of being like five minutes or two minutes, I think oftentimes we think we're giving them a heads up and that's respectful, but that can really be amping up their anxiety. My kids are a little bit sensitive, so they can, any kind of pressure, they, they go, Ugh. and so they won't say no, but they will just be like, mm, and just like run in their room. So they will do kind of more of the avoidant kind of resistance than Kelties <laughs> that are like red in your face kind of resistance. <laughs> um, so bringing them in on the conversation saying, oh my gosh, it's this, this time or what time is it bringing them in? What do we have next? Hey, you know, uh, how, how are your teeth feeling? What's going on? How about you jump on my back, giving them a fun invitation to join us in the bathroom. And if they're like, no. And if they're like, no, I don't want no to, teeth. then I would say, oh my gosh, I'd move into the empathize stage. I want to understand. Why don't you want to? We want our kids to understand their own resistance when ultimately they're going to be writing a term paper in college, when they can't get their butt to the gym, when they're, you know, really like uh, not wanting to do their taxes. We want them to be curious and warm and um, accepting of that inner resistance. There's no problem with that whatsoever. The, the key is to get, help get them to that other side of it, right? Not like fight against it and create a power struggle. So we just listen and they can't always tell us. Sometimes they're playing with their thing. We say, okay, so maybe we translate. You're wanting to play with that a little more. How about one more, you know, one more minute, you know, or when you throw that thing in the basket, you know, what, what about that? We move into that kind of sync up innovate stage where we're saying, gosh, but we're not going to have time for, for books. If we can't get those teeth brushed, you know, oh, what can we do? So we think of some ideas, we innovate. Could we go uh, walk backwards to the bathroom? My you know, love challenges like oh, that. Oh man, yeah. Oh, uh, the, the, the upside <laughs> to their spirit and stubbornness is they just like give them something they cannot ever do and they're like, I'm going to do it. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. and, and for mine, I think mine do really well with singing songs and, and mm-hmm. um, playing uh, characters. They're a little more in that kind of creative, fantastical world. Mm-hmm. But everyone you know, knows their own kid. What motivates your child? We don't need to use motivation like constantly consequences or incentives because we ultimately want our kids to grow up not saying, well, I'll do something if there's something in it for me or if I'm going to get punished. We don't want them to be motivated that way. We want them to be motivated from the inside and know a way to move through their struggles adaptively based on them, not based on external motivators like the penal system or the tax man or their boss. Um, so we think of some little ideas that could help them get going. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, they're not wanting to. And, and I've got to play it really cool with the innovate step, like not trying to fix and find the exact solution. They can really sense that pressure, but just being like, gosh, what would happen? Like, what could we do? And thinking of some other ideas, we're kind of moving. Oftentimes our kids need to see us moving forward, not expecting them to go walk in the bathroom first, but being like, I'm going to start crawling this way. Can you see if you can jump on my back as we're going, you know, or thinking of an idea of what could be meeting us in the bathroom? Could we start reading that book you wanted to read in the bathroom? What song would you like? What's going to help motivate you in a way that's attuned to you? Let's say they don't want to do that though. And they're still kind of like, no. 
then we hit we, the summarize step, right. which is where you would maybe set a limit. Mm-hmm. I, I would like, maybe, how would you even do that? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I would say, oh man, like you're still wanting to play, but oh my gosh, it's already 6.30. We're already a little past what we do. And I really want to read those books. So I, oftentimes I do give my kids the choice. If, if you don't want to brush your teeth yet, we won't have time for books. Or if you want to brush your teeth now, let's do this. Come on. And oftentimes they'll be like, okay, which Kelty's kids would never do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or they will like kind of jump on that last thing. Every now and then, if it has been, because I do let when it go a little say bit. That to me, it makes me cry. Like tears come out of my eyes. <laughs> so amazing. <laughs> Okay. Um, But oftentimes, you know, I I do not often follow through like, well, I'm going to pick you up and bring you into the bathroom. Like normally I don't end up having to do that because I know that oftentimes if I do follow through with that, even like lovingly without heat, it still is moving their body and pushing them in a way. Sometimes kids need that and they're totally okay. And they'll go into the bathroom and you maybe just need to do it a few nights of being like, well, this is my loving follow through. And this is what we do. I remember doing that with my son when he was maybe two. I'm going to herd you in there. Right. Yeah. And kind of gently kind of find a way to, to pick them up or move their bodies in a, like a consent aware way. Um, and then every now and then I even, I remember being like, well, I'm going to close the door and I'll sit here and we'll do this until we're done brushing. Like if it's been a few days, I think it, this is such a, a reality check for parents. And I think that goes back to the respect step at the beginning of saying, what are my expectations here? Is this do or die? Do teeth have to get brushed tonight? Or can we work <clears throat> through? I think toothbrushing isn't just whether they got brushed for two minutes. It's how long could we engage in a conversation thinking and talking about toothbrushing? But I think that's the opposite of what parents right. expect. They're like, how long can we have a conversation? That's the opposite of want, of what I want. I'd like no conversation and I just want them to brush them, right? Yeah. But our goal is the opposite. Our goal is no longer obedience and conformity. Our goal is processing, thinking, exploring, having a conversation, attuning to their bodies, especially around things like toothbrushing, getting in the bath, brushing hair. So much of the conversation is how are your teeth feeling? Is it like sometimes mine get a little bit sticky in there? And, and then when I go to the dentist, sometimes they have to floss really hard and that's not my favorite, mm-hmm. you know, but just checking in with them on how their body's feeling. And right? oftentimes that can be moving through the trust step. That mm-hmm. can be a conversation later that night or another time. I think so often that's when we really drill down, no pun intended mm-hmm. on saying like, dude, if you don't brush, like, look what's going to happen at the dentist. I'm going to scare you. Mm-hmm. Right. And that just adds mm-hmm. to pressure. Some kids, it ends up scaring them and we don't want them to only do things that scare scare them. Mm-hmm. I, I have to be, wait until I'm scared shitless to be motivated to do mm-hmm. something about my own body. Uh, no. So yeah. I think those come comp- do their regular doctor checks and stuff. Yeah. 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 I think to break down a couple things that you've said in there that I think, um, would be really helpful. One, we talk about, you know, boundaries in our homes being like a little playpen that our kids are within. And I think toothbrushing is a great example hitting a lot of the things we've talked about if we can have these teaching moments before we're in the moment of it happening where it's you know in our house we we brush our teeth and this is why we take care of our teeth because then in the moment i've seen with my kids um they're a lot more likely to do those things if they have that like you said intrinsic motivation as to why instead of being forced to in the moment when they're resisting um and if we can set up that infrastructure. So I, I think sometimes when people hear the process of respectful parenting, it's like, oh my gosh, like, whoa, that's a lot. Like I just want to go brush your teeth and my kids go brush their Mm -hmm. teeth. Like how hard is it? You know? But I think 
setting up that inf infrastructure before and the boundaries before lead to this conversation is not going to happen, happen every single night for the rest of their lives. They're going to get to a point where they're going to brush their teeth because they realize that it feels good to brush their teeth. And you've gotten to that end instead of, you know, I'm going to go hide and lie and say that I brush my teeth because the only reason I'm doing it is because my mom's forcing me and I'm mad at her today. So I'm not going to do it. So I think mm -hmm. that if you can use those boundaries and that infrastructure ahead of time and do these processes when your kids are young, you're going to end up in a space where, you know, I see this with Terrilyn's kids because they're older than mine and my six-year-old and even my four-year-old where they do so many things because they intrinsically feel good when they do them or they actually want to do them. And I think that's the beauty of um, having this healthy relationship instead of being a dictator in your home is our kids are motivated. Mm -hmm. I and love I, it. I love that you're saying that you're kind of introducing the idea that ownership, I mean, when you say value something, value taking care of their own body, I also hear it's that they're, we're teaching them to take ownership themselves, mm -hmm. that it isn't this box that if you check it, then you'll get my approval. But, but eventually we want them to be taking care of themselves because they see value and they own that. And I, I really love the idea, you, you know, you keep mentioning the word relationship. And I think that oftentimes we think of parenting as simply a hierarchy mm -hmm. or a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful thing about any relationship, I can't think of anything. I just want to echo what you said at the beginning to say amen, that there's been nothing in my life that has changed me more than parenting. And what it's like a sacred space, I think, to have so much influence back and forth. It is a back and forth flow mm -hmm. of influence from mm -hmm. our children to us and us to our children. So I, I really love your resist approach because it just gives you steps to go back to so you're not skipping large amounts. Um, but I really, that's really helpful to me. And hearing you walk through those individual circumstances is also, I think, like any situation, you can actually see how it works mm -hmm. when you have those individual things. So thank you for walking through those really common pain points that a lot of our listeners ask us questions about. And that we've, I mean, we've all experienced the, <laughs> the, the teeth brushing and the sibling squabbling. And even you mentioned, we didn't go through it, but the picking up toys. Oh my goodness. I mm -hmm. feel like I could talk to you guys for a long time about this. But. <laughs> and that there's no one size fits all with our kids. I think there's so much parenting information and every parent wants to pick up one book and it's going to solve all their problems. But we just need to look at it as, as in any relationship with an adult, they're another whole human being with their own needs, their own wants, their own ideas. And it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be super messy. And we are going to learn something new every single day. And what worked yesterday is probably not going to work the next day. And it's just growing up and getting to know our kids. Oh, love that. Yeah. We call it our, our fail forward practice, daily practice of growing up <laughs> alongside our kids and working those conversations. There's no exactly right wording. Like we have an elements of respect print that we put up in our own homes and then it's in our shop now of all this phrasing that helps us kind of reprogram our brains. But, but we end up finding the words that, that don't just come instinctually that are based from these paradigms of control that we brought into our homes, but that really come more intuitively of saying, how would I like to be spoken to? How would I like to have been treated? 
about things in my own body and in my own environment that I'm ultimately going to have to take, like you said, so, so perfectly responsibility and even joy around someday, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, such a different conversation and it's going to ebb and flow. Um, but that's the beauty of it. Like you said, and the beauty I think too, has been the way we've been able to apply it in our other relationships in our lives. Oh my gosh. We like use the resist approach with our husbands so much and hope that they use it with us. Like when I'm flying off the handle and totally freaking out and being picking things up around the house, being like, what's this? What's this? Why is this still out? Why are these crumbs here? My husband, I don't want him to just focus on how, how like crazy I'm being. I want him to be like, what's going on? How are you doing? How was your day? What do you need right now? Can I put my arms around you? right? It's something that we can all be using with each other and and with ourselves, giving ourselves grace, working the steps personally, internally, even. Mm -hmm. That's so beautiful. (laughs) That's what we do want when we're, (laughs) I've totally been there. Why is this still out? I put this away four times. Um, I love that. That's so good. I do think as we get better at parent, I don't know if better at parenting is the right word, but as we uh, work through this and learn more about, I think anytime we change our practice towards being more respectful and loving, it's almost impossible not to have it affect every relationship with people that we love in our lives. Mm -hmm. So it's so beautiful. Well, I could just talk to you guys all day long, but I want to know (laughs) for our listeners who also can't get enough of you guys, where can they find more from you and some of your resources that you can share with them? Yeah, they can go to upbringing.co to just learn more about us, to find the podcast, to check out our shop, to do our resist and uh, freedoms downloads. Um, Instagram is our other kind of hub where we do a lot of um, videos and live Q and A's where folks just come and they talk about the hard stuff and we try to convince them why it's the good stuff for our kids, for us, for raising the next generation and creating some greater social change. Um, it was so great talking with you both today. It was such a treat. This was so fun. Yeah, so fun. And I have one more question for you both. We are kind of habit geeks over here. So we have to ask all of our guests, guests. So both of you, I want to hear from both of you. What is a habit that you have that um, is a game changer and helps you find magic every day? Put you on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> I've been leaning back into my meditation habit. Ooh, which good. has been, I don't know if that counts as a habit. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. It counts as my favorite habit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's been helping me find magic, uh, both in, in the process of meditating and just in the rest of my, of my day all, all around it. Mm-hmm. So what form what of meditation mean? do you like? <clears throat> um, I don't know. Hannah was trained in TM and she sort of trained me. And then we took a mindfulness based stress reduction course where we, for eight weeks trained in meditation. Um, yeah. I don't know if there's an actual practice. It's okay. just my practice. Oh yeah. I love I love that. <laughs> Nothing fancy. Nice. Oh my gosh. What would mine be? Um, I was going to say taking deep breaths, which it sounds like so similar to yours, Kelty, but I think that in the moment, Kelty and I've been talking so much with, um, with folks we um, coach and with our community about that self-reg game mm-hmm. and how I think that so much about it, again, isn't about changing our kids or controlling our kids. It's about our own, when it comes to discipline, our own self-discipline, our own self-regulation. So I've really been focusing on 
before you know, noticing this, the steps, my body getting connected to it and realizing when I start to ramp up and even just trying to take a few deep breaths, it sounds so cheesy. And if anybody ever told me to take deep breaths, I'd be like, no, absolutely <laughs> not. Um, go away. Um, but taking those willingly, intrinsically motivated, so to speak, mm-hmm. has been such a game changer with my partner, with, um, with my kids. It's been helping me so much to the point, like I mentioned earlier, where my daughter's like, mom, uh, do you need to take some deep breaths right now? Right. Or they notice and they're like, are you, my son's like, are you feeling frustrated? <laughs> um, you know, um, and where he'll even say I was frust- you know, frustrated earlier with any Kelty's son. And so I took a few deep breaths, but so it's one of those things. It's just like paying out dividends. It's, mm-hmm. it's an investment that I'm really grateful to have made. So. And it's like a mini meditation, really, if you can do that throughout the day. So I love that. Right. I feel like they're preventative in different ways. The meditation uh-huh. is like, I'm, I'm uh-huh. focusing this time right now because I know I have it. And the deep breaths are when you feel like you're getting into that like danger zone a little bit, right? Totally. Yes. I, we just finished reading Atomic Habits. And so I started getting really into habit stacking. And something that I've started, there was actually a friend who suggested it. I take deep breaths at stoplights. So anytime Ooh. I'm at a stoplight, and it's finally like actually becoming like a ping for me in my head. Like I see the red light and I take deep breaths. And I have to say, if you're into deep breaths, it's a good little uh, trigger to, and because then you to get that. deep breaths every single day. If you're, I don't know, actually, if you guys live by stoplights, do you? <laughs> we do, we, a lot. Well, okay. yeah. Why should your child be the only trigger for you taking deep breaths? Can't it be something <laughs> innocuous like a traffic light? <laughs> and I like it because at red lights, you feel like you're being held back from progress, from moving. And I think it helps rewrite that into like, I'm cool. I'm just nurturing myself here. here. I'm happy to see this red light. (laughs) (laughs) All right, ladies. Well, you were so fun to talk to. Thank you for taking the time and thanks for helping our listeners find magic. Same. Thank you. We're so happy to be here. Very magical. Thank you again. But seriously, cleaning up is that that's a struggle lately. Has that been a thing? Oh my goodness. For me, so I don't know what you guys' school situation is, but I've homeschooled and I've my kids have gone to school. Their situation right now is they're doing half school because of COVID. Two days a week of school, three days a week of remote schooling. And today, I like when you brought up the cleaning thing, I was like, if we had more time here, I need to ask more questions because my house, I mean, seriously, at one point, I'm helping my daughter with science. My four-year-old is pouring sugar, sugar, <laughs> all over the kitchen floor. And it was one of those, like, I actually am right in the middle of the science thing. So I was just like, hey, guys, could you go outside, play, put on some pants first, though, please? They didn't put on pants. So then I had a friend come over. My four-year-old is just pantsless. Like, a shirt on, no pants. And they're like sitting on the front porch playing great. And she's like, what's happening? I'm like, well, he was pouring sugar everywhere and I wanted to stay calm. So I just told them to go play outside. (laughs) Just getting it done. I was going to say, throw away all the toys. That's what I've started doing, but that doesn't really apply to sugar. You've got to keep the sugar. Yeah. But seriously, I mean, like we, with all my kids in my house all the time while we're trying to do other things. Yeah. I'm having a, I'm having a struggle right now with the house. (laughs) Yeah. And wait, remind me of their ages again. I have 11, nine, six, and four. Okay. 
Yeah, that's a lot. That is a lot of, of I would say family agreements. Do you guys do kind of family agreements around contributions? Uh-huh. Yeah. Have they you... each have chores. They each have like things okay. they do every day. Although that does create conflict because my older two do their chores every day and my younger mm-hmm. two don't always mm-hmm. do their chores. And that creates uh issues because you know my girls will be like why mm-hmm. this table is not wiped off he said he was gonna do it and he didn't <laughs> yeah that's a good distinction you're you're identifying right there that the older kids are actually capable of doing it and the younger ones struggle based on their age mm-hmm. right i would add the word yet they're not doing all of their chores yet. all the time yet you know, and I think talking with, you know, having those conversations, which you may be having with your older kids being like, oh my gosh, (laughs) do you remember when, maybe you don't remember when you were their age, but man, I struggled a lot because I thought that you should always clean up what you agreed to every time. And I realized over time that that actually takes years to happen. I mean, my husband is still learning. Let's get real. Uh-huh. Um, he had, he, we have a family agreement about his tasks and he doesn't do them when he needs to and completely even. So <clears throat> it's a long process and, and helping build that, that compassion and awareness in the older kids that like the younger kids need positive support and associations if they're going to want to do it. If we're, you know, you know, uh, nagging them and getting frustrated about it. That's telling them, Ooh, cleaning table. Don't want to be around that crumbs. Ooh, she looks at me that way. I'm going to run the other way. And it's telling the older kids, Ugh, my little delinquent younger siblings are shirking their responsibilities. <laughs> this is irresponsible. Why aren't they pulling their weight? Right. Right. Yeah. I think it's, it's been nice for us going to the older kids and being like, Oh my gosh, the boys are so not wanting to pick up anything. They'll like watch us. They'll be like, fine, I'll come, but I'm just going to watch. And the mm-hmm. girls and us, they're like, okay. And we're, we're struggling with this feeling of, we don't want our sons, like a lot of people watching women constantly picking up after them all day. All mm-hmm. of us struggle with that feeling of conditioning them um, towards something that we don't really want them to be having an assumption about. But I think that our girls keep, did it too. Our though. girls did it too. And I think <laughs> yeah. that if we can keep leaning in with that trust, thinking this is a process, this is scaffolding. If we keep this positive, if we keep this collaborative, it's going to get in there just like it did with the girls. Well, and like you said, I don't know if it was Felicia who said earlier that so much of the work of this respectful parenting, again, isn't in the moment, but it's building the context and the value the and modeling. the modeling mm-hmm. behind the scenes. We call it behind the scenes where you're being like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad we cleaned before we left because look, we came home to this wonderful place. And like know where all of our supplies right. are, you know, like just making all, having those conversations throughout the day about how good it feels or, oh, that's a struggle. Cause I can't find it. Cause I didn't put it away. Or, you know, if my son does have trouble putting his certain things back that he kind of agreed on, sometimes they disappear because it's so hard to find them when they don't go mm-hmm. in a certain place. I don't know where it was. Those are natural. Left it out, right? Those are natural consequences, you know? Mm-hmm. That's so mm-hmm. good. This is a very good reminder for me. Do you guys write down your agreements or do you just talk about them as a family? So far, we've just talked about them because mm-hmm. the kids are pretty young. But I think we're probably getting near that time with the girls My where they would been listing where stuff. they would want to write it down yeah. and like have it on the fridge. And then making those agreements again, like did the four year old say, "I want to wipe the table," or was that chore given to him? You know, really making sure that they have that buy in, that they had that list of opportunities where they're like, "I love this," and let them choose mm-hmm. the things that they want to do. Just again, build that intrinsic motivation. And the and with the idea too that the agreements aren't set in stone. It's not making an agreement with a family isn't saying now you get a consequence or I can rag on you if you don't do it. 
right? It's, mm-hmm. it's promoting kind of this sort of like teamwork aspect of responsibility giving and, and trying to get all these, these things done, but loosely, mm-hmm. right? We're not going to bust anybody if it doesn't happen. Well, it just requires another conversation. Right. Hey, so how's it going? So I noticed in a receptive circle back moment. So you haven't been wanting to put those Legos back before we rotate into lunch. What's up with that? How's it going? Mm-hmm. What could we do that would make get a little more fun. Like what, you know, again, helping them with those innovating strategies. Right. Yeah. And that can be in the moment too, where we'll have a natural consequence. Not that something might get taken away, but you know, I'm really excited about going outside to play in the backyard or doing that popsicle time or whatever it is. Once we get the table cleaned up, we'll be able to head out and really kind of thinking about the staging of events, um, the habit pairing, the habit pairing, exactly. <laughs> in trying to kind of find that fun or a little bit more interesting or a little bit more exciting thing right after a time that needs to be cleaning up or getting those clothes on or whatever it is. So we can pair them together. Once we get those clothes on, we'll be able to X, Y, Z. So we're not saying do this, or you won't be able to do this. We're just saying, once this happens, we'll be doing it. Mm-hmm. We're just saying like the powers that be say, once, once you get this done, we'll be able to go this thing. I really know you want to do, right? Uh-huh. You guys, Buffy's fans too. <laughs> no, I'm not. Was that a reference to Buffy? It's a Buffy the Vampire reference. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> Brown cows. <laughs>